The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia. Linda Rosenwine is here with me on this call, and today we're speaking with Yarmo Kickstra, and we're going to be talking about whether it's possible to fight poverty and fight climate change and be effective with both. Hello, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. And before we get into the topic, would you please tell folks a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm working now at uh, uh, at IASA, International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, and I'm doing my uh, PhD at Imperial College London. Um, and so mostly working in a field of climate mitigation and energy research. Here in the U.S., we hear this very often that people focus on the cost of turning climate change around and not the benefits of doing so. Do you have something you'd like to say about that? Right. So actually in a slightly different study than the one that we're going to focus on today, I think we also looked at that and the cost of inaction on climate change and economic costs of, uh, of inaction is much, much bigger than the cost of action. So the, the most radical option almost that you have would be to not actually act and not actually mitigate climate change. People are concerned about the economy, hurting services, hurting jobs, you know, any other thoughts you have about those sorts of things? So, so your economy is negatively affected by higher temperatures globally in general. And this can be through extreme events, uh, droughts, heat waves, mortality. There are many different impacts that uh, climate change can have on your economy. Um, and indeed, this can lead to uh, sectors being affected and, and people having to be reschooled. Um, so in general, the, the overwhelming impact of higher temperatures are going to negatively impact the economy. And the cost of mitigation is only small compared to this, this cost that unmitigated climate change would have. And also health effects. I, I know that that's another for one. Sure. For sure. So one of the bigger effects is that a heat wave basically leads to more people dying in a city. And, and this has been documented everywhere. Mortality is already uh, an impact there, but it has broader health effects for sure. Is the way we're using energy now contributing to human well-being overall? Um, yes. So we need energy for our lives. Um, almost everything that we're doing in our modern lives requires energy. Um, whether we want to take certain public transport or a car somewhere, we need energy to move. Um, if we eat our food, energy has been put in to produce our foods. If we want to heat, uh, warm up our homes or even cool it, if, if we need air conditioning when it gets too hot, all of this costs energy. And so energy is a prerequisite for well-being in, in many different facets of, of our lives. So in principle, um, energy contributes to well-being. The question is, of course, what kind of energy do we use? And does that kind of energy that we use then negatively affect our well-being too? And that's where you can clearly see when you start using um, energy sources that are polluting. Most of our energy now comes from fossil fuel uh, resources, 
And this comes with the big negative impact that it releases CO2. Besides actually also health impacts, um, but we can go into that later. So let's turn to the research that you have done on eradicating poverty, I guess, by 2040. Is that right? Yeah, we look at the at different timings and, and our main focus is, is a scenario that would eradicate poverty, rather provides the basic material prerequisites for a decent life by 2040. Yeah, and, and are you including in that also the cost of the energy? Right, not explicitly. So what our research does is we first wanted to have a look at what uh, material prerequisites there are. Um, so what do you really need? And so what, what you need is, of course, enough nutrition, enough uh, good shelter, solid shelter, heating and cooling. If it gets too hot or too cold in your climatic zone, um, you need transport, you need education, healthcare, etc. We then try to calculate how much energy is required to provide these services, both to build um, whatever infrastructure that you need and also to provide the service every year and again. And our research focuses... Uh, specifically on trying to figure out how much energy is required there. Because as we just discussed, uh, energy is very important for providing these services. You need energy for a decent life. At the same time, energy is the biggest factor of greenhouse gases. So uh, how energy is, is currently produced. If, if you generate electricity, if you do this with coal, that, that comes with CO2 emissions. And does it contribute to climate change? So energy is kind of like in the middle between two big challenges that we're currently having. On the one hand, it's a key factor in eradicating poverty. On the other hand, it's a key factor in climate mitigation because we need to transform our energy system. Did you find that it's possible to do both of those things? Yes, in principle, yes. So a question that people have previously asked is whether it's even possible to provide a good life to everyone in terms of how much energy you need for it, but then still be able to mitigate climate change. Because mitigating climate change is easier if you reduce energy demands. Uh, if you need less energy, then you need to produce less, so also CO2 emissions could be lower. That, that, that logic makes sense. At the same time, if there are more people that live uh, a life where they have all of the material resources that it needs, you need more material resource, more energy. The question is only how far are these two apart, right? And we find that they're actually quite far apart still. So all of the uh, energy that is required for a decent life for everyone is only about a quarter to a third of the total energy that we're already currently using. Um, so in principle, it, it's very possible. It's, it's more of a question of who is currently using all of this energy. So how does that work? How does that work? Um, in the sense that basically there is a lot of energy consumption that is mm, used for effluence too, right? So there are people flying uh, a lot, for instance. This is a lot of energy use, right? And it's not something that is clearly a basic human need, right? Um, so there are a lot of regions that are either not very efficient with their energy use or use much more energy than is required from a certain point of view of poverty, right? 
Um, so they're very rich in affluent societies. And that means that there's much more energy being used, even when there are a lot of people living in poverty that are hardly using any energy. So you define poverty, I think, in terms of living a decent life. And why did you define it that way? And, and because not everybody has always defined it that yeah. way. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point. And I think I've been using the, the term poverty a bit loosely here. Um, so indeed, a lot of people before, when you talk about poverty, then you think about one indicator, which is household income. Um, so let's say, do you have a dollar a day or $5 a day, right? And if you have on average less than $5 a day, for instance, you're income poor. But there are multiple aspects of poverty. You can also look more multidimensionally because you might have $5 a day, but you might not be able to actually have all of the aspects that consider a decent life. So from $5 a day, you might, for instance, not be able to, to, to live in a, a solid house. So you might still lack some of the basic needs. If you try to collect all of the statistics on who lacks certain decent living standards, that that's quite a lot more people actually than the people that live on $2 a day or on $5 a day. So what methods did, did you use in your research? Yeah, what methods did we use? Um, actually, we needed to use a bunch of different methods. So it depends very much on which dimension of life you, you look at to determine uh, how much energy is required for this, uh, this part of life. The, the, the reason for that is that not on all of them you have the same amount of data and not on all of them we have the same amount of uh, scientific uh, insight, basically. So a very simple uh, example is that we look at how much energy it costs to prepare food. So you need a, a, a cooking stove and we look at then a, a clean cooking stove. And you look at how much energy it costs to build that cooking stove. And you look at how much energy it costs to cook your food. And for this, there are actually already existing studies that look at the life cycle analysis is what we call this. And so you look at how much energy is used over the lifetime of that clean cooking stove. And you look at how, how often you need to get a new one, basically. So this is relatively simple. You get uh, a number, a certain amount of energy from uh, the literature, and you multiply that by how many people need to have it. In, in other cases, it might be more difficult. Um, it might be more difficult to determine how much energy you actually need, for instance, for healthcare, because it's not very clear what the basic need for healthcare is. Or for transport, you have different types of transport. Not every country has the same transport system. You need to look at uh, what the different modes of transport are that are being used in different regions of the world. So this could be either bus or it could be a car or it could be a train. And then you need to look at how much energy is uh, needed to build that out in those different regions and, and how much energy is going into actually uh, run these, these trains and cars. Which leads to the obvious question of whether the findings were different in different parts of the world. Right. Yes. And, and they are. Um, so we depart from the perspective that everyone has the same needs. Everyone wants to live in or wants to have a house where it's comfortable living thermally. So 
um, it needs to be, let's say, around 20, 22 degrees Celsius, right? So, so we, we define a certain, certain space there. Everyone has the same needs for education. Everyone has the same. So, so on all of these, we, we start from the same needs, but your um, context might be different, right? So um, if there is no public transport or if there is a lot of transport, then whether your transport needs are, um, are fulfilled by public transport or by private transport, that determines how much energy is then required for fulfilling your need, which is transport. And the same holds for food. Um, your food, the production chain might be different or your diet might be different. You still need enough food, right? But how much energy is actually required might be different. And, and the most obvious one is probably to point this out is whether you need heating or cooling. There are different regions. Even in the US, this is already different per region. And you can imagine whether you live in, in Norway or whether you live in, in, in Brazil, um, somewhere in, in a warmer region, um, your heating or cooling needs over, over the year is very different. So if you need to heat your house all year round almost, they need a lot more energy to be able to, to live in, comfortably in your house. This seems like a lot of very complex data. How did you go about teasing all this out? Yeah, so, so luckily I didn't have to do this on my own. Uh, I worked together with great fellow researchers who have uh, a bunch of experience in this. So the entire part that, that revolves around housing, heating and cooling, basically built on a model that was built over years. Um, and then you feed it the current climate data and um, you can then spit out a couple of scenarios on how to do this. Another part, it requires uh, different knowledge. So indeed on education and on healthcare, for instance, and nutrition, um, you build on a lot of um, knowledge that has been collected. Basically, these are called input-output tables. So these are other researchers that have collected a lot of information on how much energy um, and materials go into certain trade between countries. And so you try to then get out how much energy is embedded in, for instance, food or how much energy is required for uh, healthcare. And in, in, in again, different uh, other dimensions, uh, it actually just is one or two numbers because you uh, make a certain assumption. Um, but together with, in the end, uh, with the five of us, we try to pull this all together. And it builds, of course, on other researchers to have done this again and again. And we just add, uh, on the one side, we add a bit more um, detail to it. And on the other side, we take an extra step in trying to calculate what the current gaps are in, in uh, all of these services. So how many people lack these decent living services? It sounds like from what you're saying, considering the way things are run now, that a whole lot of policies may need to change. So what effect have your findings had so far? In terms of how much effect it has had in policy, I'm not sure if it has been out in long enough uh, to, to really tell. Um, I really do hope that, that it will, though. For me, this takes at least a step towards um, the direction where it's, it becomes very clear that saying 
that lifting people out of poverty is really a threat for global climate mitigation. I think our study weighs in clearly on the side of the evidence that this is not the case, um, that it is possible to lift people out of poverty while mitigating climate change, right? I, I wouldn't go as far to say that our study on itself is entirely conclusive um, because it doesn't provide full scenarios of where we are now and where we uh, want to go. Um, that's still up for future research, I think, but it does uh, show the order of magnitude. And so it shows that, yes, there is a really big challenge, um, but it's very possible to imagine how, how to go from here. And in terms of what it also shows is it shows to some extent in which different um, dimensions of life, affluence is much bigger in terms of energy than in other dimensions. It also shows that for different regions, right? So in some regions, the energy consumption is many, many times higher than the basic need uh, for energy. And that could definitely be an inspiration for policies there. I'm interested in thinking about how we get to that point. So what are your thoughts about, is there enough energy to make the change? Because it will, it will take energy plus the cost to make the change. Definitely. So, so it will take energy indeed to provide new resources. So, so for instance, most clearly, if you would like to provide more transport to people that really lack it, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, then you need to build roads and you need to build public transport, right? And it costs energy to build these new infrastructure. Um, actually, the biggest part of a new energy investment would be in, in terms of, would be in housing. So providing solid housing, uh, especially for sub-Saharan Africa. However, we actually looked at this and what we find is that it's only a very small portion. So if you look at, at the total energy needs, and you look at uh, how much it would require to build out all of this new infrastructure for where it's not there yet. This only costs about 290 exajoules. Translating that into uh, more normal terms, this is about three quarters of what we use annually. Um, so it's, it's less than all of the energy that we use in a year. So if we would want to build out all of this infrastructure that is required to provide decent living standards to everyone by, for instance, 2040, then this is less than 3% of our energy use. It's really a relatively small part, this part of constructing and, and of providing this new infrastructure. It's a much smaller part than the the operation, right? So, so how much does it cost to to keep running these these services? I guess you said there there's a lot of excess energy. What does that mean in terms of energy for business, for those who currently live above poverty, for recreation, religious expression, artistic life, security, etc. And because you also mentioned uh, security and, and creativity, these are parts that we actually don't include in our basic needs. So we start from a perspective where we try to get to the minimum material requirements for well-being. And so we basically take a, an approach where we take a basket of, of services 
and then you get to a certain estimate of how much energy is required for this. So it's a it's a start, but it's not all that everyone would want in their lives, right? So it's it's a minimum, um, and it could be that it's higher, and and everyone might have slightly different interpretations of how much is really required as as a basic minimum need. Uh, so so that's one part, and then the second part for what happens or should happen with affluence. So so like if if I live, for instance, in a house that is two hundred square meters, right? Um, it might be very nice for me and, and maybe uh, my partner, right? But it's definitely more than what we calculate with, right? So, so it's more than would be the basic uh, minimum requirement for a decent life. You might not need all of that extra space. How you then get uh, from there to um, a society where um, such so affluence is, is maybe not there, if, if you want this, that's definitely a question of, of for policymakers. And so it's a question that society probably has to figure out together, um, or a question on whether you want to sustain um, such, such ways of living or not. Um, and so, so it's not a question I, I can answer as a, as a researcher, I think. Um, but as a citizen, you might consider certain policies to try to discourage overconsumption. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners here in America? I think one aspect that becomes very clear from our research is that transport is a very energy intensive service. Basic transport costs more energy than, for instance, housing or than uh, healthcare or than food provisioning. And there is a an easy, relatively clear way on how to make transport less energy intensive, and that's by using public transport. So uh, a train is much more energy efficient than uh, sitting in a car, and the same holds for a bus is more energy efficient than sitting in a car. So so this is one part. Um, the other part is that we basically find a lot of inequality both across countries and within countries. Um, so we have the resources in general to provide everyone with a decent life. Um, this does not have to necessarily conflict with um, limiting rising global temperatures and stabilizing global temperatures. This is possible, but we definitely need to address inequality. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. 